Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're good. I'm Jack Chu. If you don't tune in on a regular basis, then you're in for a treat today because I've got a guest on and you're not having to tolerate me just riffing for half an hour. We're going to have a really interesting discussion about cross-sector um, professional working, private and public, and uh, thinking about how we can best collaborate. But also, as you guys know, I always prefer to have a real cards on the table style analysis rather than pretending that all's well and that actually we're, you know, we're nearly there and it's all going to be easy. We know it's difficult, but what are the barriers and how can we overcome them together? So I hope you're going to join us to collaborate on that because we really definitely want your voice involved. But uh, without further ado, hopefully I can slide in Sue Julians, who is joining me to chat about this. Who We've been having a bit of a back and forth privately about it and it just felt like a brilliant opportunity to bring her voice forward so hopefully if the tech works in comes sue sue can you hear us yes i can hear you thank you jack thank you for having Fantastic. me on no bother well t tell the listeners a little bit about you and your work if you can to start us off oh yeah um I i'm ancient uh, i'm 50 i've i qualified in 1990 uh, and having worked in, the, I worked in the NHS to begin with, and then I worked at a military hospital. And after I did my master's degree, I got offered a fab job in the private sector. So since um, 95, 96, I've been working in the private sector and I've been running my own business since 2003. OK, brilliant. And I said uh, we were just saying because of the circumstances that we found ourselves in the pandemic, it's definitely disrupted our businesses significantly, which means that we're then a bit more available on social media, which is one of the one of the upside, one of the few upsides of it has meant that we've interacted a little more and realized that we've got some serious kinship when it comes to some um, vision stuff or as to how we can better uh, collaborate across sectors, because that's one of the things that has cropped up a few times in different contexts whereby people are thinking like, how can health professionals in this in this country particularly but no doubt it translates across the world really is how can we better uh, raise standards in order to be more useful because at the moment siloed working it's it's only highlighted that hasn't it the uh, yeah, there are absolutely. significant barriers so well, i suppose where to start is it's, it's, it's difficult because i know we've got a lot to say on this but i just wondered if you could just start us off by by describing what we perceive and obviously you don't you know we might there might be daylight between our positions here and we can find out but what's your take on you know on an analysis level as to what the state of play is yeah. with regards to public and private sector at the minute i think that we have to remember from the start that there are brilliant clinicians everywhere and everybody went into this career because they wanted to help people and fix them if if that can, if that's allowed to be said these days and that we all we all have that passion um and there are some rogue operators in the private sector um there are there are not very good workers in the nhs whichever area you're in you have the full range and so if we want to collaborate and we should collaborate because if COVID has shown us anything it's the need for, to do that then we need to be honest about what we bring to the table and what we suggest that we take on uh, we can't cherry prick from private practice um, I, we need to do some more of the grunt work that, 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 that is difficult and find challenging in the in the NHS as well no, that's a really interesting point and certainly something that we want to draw. Whoever's listening live, we know that some of your feedback after the fact, watch afterwards in your commutes, etc. And we really value your feedback. But if you are tuning in live, then please do get involved. I want to ask you that same question then to the audience. What do you feel the state of play is at the moment with regards to public and private sector working and collaboration? Hopefully you've got some good examples, don't get me wrong, and please do post them in the comments. But I definitely want to hear from you as to whether you feel like everything's rosy, we don't know what you're on about, or like us, do you feel like things could be a lot better? So just on your on your thoughts there, there Sue, 
I totally agree with that, and we've spoken off air, and it's no surprise to you that I agree with that. But I wonder if it seems so intuitive to me and you to say that and to say rogue operators. I'm often referring to them as cowboys in the uh, in the private sector, and then this, you know, uh, poor clinicians that it sort of feels like a different flavour, really, whereby yeah, yeah. sort of I consider it to be almost like a complacency um, and and a, and a, you know the the ways in which. You, you, don't, you typically get two different types and, and it's, I need a better phrase for it you know, than cowboy. But that seems, we're saying that as matter of fact, and I think many of our listeners may well, may well agree with that, but even saying that, that's been a difficult thing for me to articulate without being uh, fairly, I'd even go, go as far as to say harassed, right? There's people that suggest that no, that, that's, that's or they're in such a minority that therefore they're not worth talking about. And there's a lack of ownership, it seems, for yeah. the problems, which means that we can't really aim for solutions because we're not uh, allowing for a proper thorough analysis. I'm, I'm, I've, you know, have you encountered any of that? Well, I think that's right, and I think that um, the, the different—I uh, I, I liked your point that it, it's a slightly different type of bad in the different sectors <laughs> because because it just it, it, it's all as a result of the flaw of that sector. Right. So in the private sector, you're rewarded for empire building. You're rewarded for giving um, a cheap service that only treats two sessions. That is the reward mechanism in the private sector. So you have to be really passionate about quality of care and quality of the service that you're delivering to be able to finesse that force. In the NHS, I have no idea because I've been out in the NHS for so long. Some other somebody else can tell me what that is. But instinctively I would suggest and tell me if I'm wrong people out there that we have to fight for the patients we get if they're not happy they go elsewhere now there are public private sectors where you get this enormous amount this contract and and you don't have to fight for that work it's going to come to you anyway but is there an easy way to to put your feet under the table and say yeah okay you know, I, I, I don't know. People can comment on that, really. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit closer to it. I mean, it's only recently, really, that I fully knocked on the head what was part-time NHS work and advanced practice, etc. So I'm a bit closer to it um, in time frame than you. But um, generally, I think I think you're fairly, you know, there's definitely that's our problem. Um, and it's a market force in both both instances, whereby that's why I describe it as being it's a place where, you know, significant complacency can exist, whereby, you know, you, you're just you're somewhat unchecked. It doesn't really matter matter if your patients aren't getting on very well aren't even getting better on a regular basis it's sort of the, the system is just going to be able to support you in a sense that you're just going to the waiting list full if any if anything you've even got some unscrupulous managers that are thinking well sod it they, you know, they, they, uh, the amount of uh, dna's or loss to follow-ups at least we're yeah. getting another new patient in you know f- fundamentally it's just a conveyor belt and therefore the actual care quality goes out the window unless individuals step up or you've got a good governance system in in teams of quiz of course it's great services and great teams and i've worked with many of them but in the private sector i just want to pass out a couple of things there because i do agree you're you're incentivized on contract a lot work to then provide a cheap service that's not appropriately thorough, couple of sessions, et cetera, wash, rinse, repeat. However, you're yep. also rewarded for 22 sessions, 32 sessions of com- a, a different style of conveyor belt treatment on a cash pay where you've got some sort of charismatic, again, I call them cowboys, sort of uh, inferring <laughs> or selling sickness. Or, you know, I, I, I suggest, you know, uh, upselling, upselling them an orthotic for a shoulder problem, right? You've just got this 
this ability to then start to the, the sales infiltration in a sense to the cash paid private practice work which yeah. is which is slightly different Yes, exactly. I mean, we all know of practices that spend 25 treatments treating a frozen shoulder with ultrasound or something. And, and, and I'm sure that that still goes on. Not in my practice. I know exactly what my, <laughs> what my average number of treatments per patient is because I ask, because I do the numbers and because we have good quality control through the Physio First's um, quality control clinic evaluation system, every patient's details is put into the University of Brighton's robust program. It's followed up with questionnaires. I also do my own audit on this um, mm -hmm. to know that we're offering a quality service. And in fact, if any of you, if any uh, people are looking with private medical insurance eyes, they are constantly beating down on the amount of stuff that we're allowed to offer. And in fact, they're emulating quite a lot of the two sessions of advice and exercise too far the other way. So, so you know, I've managed to finesse both of those um, things by 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 designing a, a business and my business model is different so I, I can avoid both of those two extremes but yeah it exists and a bit a bit of what I'd really like to do is start to think positively about how we can work together knowing these things and correcting from from each other's side you know make the most of each other's qualities and 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 mitigate the flaws you know if you want us to be on a database which is quality checked etc we can do that you know we can we can prove that we're good and we're not wasteful and we're good clinicians just give us the opportunity so how can we get this engagement between the two sectors that's what i'm interested in absolutely now wh what would we say are the key what's the low-hanging fruit there then because i feel like at this point in time the amount of disruption that's across the healthcare landscape means that there are opportunities that should or will knock what do you think are the most um yeah, as I say, low-hanging fruit for us getting a better collaborative working relationship across. I can think of a couple of obvious things that might be good to do. Um, I was very much struck by Jeremy Hunt's note on Twitter when he said we need an NHS reservist uh, thing, like the army, um, where you can be called in at, at times of national crisis like now, because most of us are sitting on our hands or many of us are sitting on our hands and we could be useful here. But also, you know, so, so, but more immediately, there's been a call for private practices to take students because the colleges can't do it. <laughs> and so we should engage with some of that and maybe the training of the more junior staff within the NHS um, and engage with them on that level. So you get heads of private practices and heads of NHS departments coming together and designing programs for this kind of thing. That would be the beginning of trust between the two sectors. Um, and I, I'm really into the devolvement of control from, from central to local so that the people who are actually at the call face are deciding what's important and what are the priorities for intervention as well. So, so there's that, but then there's also this reservist thing. I mean, if we could have a system where we're all in the NHS bank and we all did two weeks a year in the NHS as private practitioners, we could be utilized easily, quickly, and we could also build up the trust. We know how the NHS system works. So if we get called in with something like this, the winter crises every year, then we can go in without any, any block, any barriers, all this silly list of things that ticks boxes of things we're having to do to get involved is, is nuts. 
Absolutely. I mean, that speaks a lot to um, what I was trying to work on early in the pandemic, especially when we thought that this was something that was going to kill 3% of us you know, next coming of Ebola. It was um, contagious at surface transmission. It was going to hang around for several weeks on a foamite. Like it was like, whilst it's still very serious, it was in a situation where it looked like this was going to be a hunkering down of a different thing in the, in the March time. So I set up this rehab recruits campaign through MSKR, whereby we were trying to then get people to actually declare their names against a policy whereby they were going to be used close to their skill set. So instead of volunteering as a uh, rehab-centered experienced clinician who's led many a large team, that you then get placed as a porter. You know, instead of doing that, what, how can we work close to our skill set? And obviously, I was trying to make a case interprofessionally for that being rehab center, trying to lead people through individualized function. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up, though, is that on a governance level, and I took that very far and very high uh, within senior civil servants in the health quine goes, as well as some politicians, oh, wow. is that yeah, yeah. the comprehension exercise that I had to do to try and get them to even realize what is MSK, what is rehabilitation. And I don't mean on a niche level. I just mean that then when people were, when they were hearing me out, you've got senior leaders within the health quangos saying, well, your MSK clinicians are probably do well in our proning teams because then they can do, help with the manual handling and make sure that people look after their backs when they're rolling patients. And they're just, they're, they're seeing things through a quite narrow lens. Now, I'm not just trying to problematize it. I want to strive towards solutions in this conversation on future ones, but it's more that that comprehension exercise will only occur you know, it's sort of my long-winded way of speaking to your point is that we need to test that water we need to be knowing each other's work trusting each other both in in, in as individuals but also that cross-sector working as people start to see it work and see it bolstering service as well and sensibly that might well be the answer to that introduction of of, uh, of better collaborative working because if we don't allow for that interaction then we're never going to be able to notice that we're speaking a similar language that we're driving towards the same outcomes for our patients and that there's much more similarity than than difference there um, yeah, yeah so absolutely I, and i also feel very passionate sorry so i was just going to say what i just wondered what your thoughts are on that governance level as to like how how can we get that through how can people comprehend what we do differently well i think there's a couple of things to um, drill down there one, I think we can all agree across the profession that physiotherapy has been undervalued for some time and um, that there are lots of things that physiotherapy can do um, that will stop people needing to take non-steroidal drugs repeatedly and wreck their stomach linings and end up with all these concomitant problems. The, treating chronic diseases has, is sneered at. We've we got a lot to offer. You know, there was a piece... Um, a, a piece of research in 2016 that showed that giving people a bit of physio for their chronic knee arthritis saved money because they had less anti-inflammatory drugs over a period of time and didn't develop all these extra things on the top. And so I think that there's, there, there is that because we've gone from an NHS that was doctor-led mm -hmm. to manager-led. <laughs> so, so, so both of those are not great for physio because we're not in the room with either of these people pleading our case. Um, and the other thing that I would say is, is that we need to decentralize this so that, you know, you, you, the German medical system is very much public-private working together at a local level, knowing what each other is doing 
uh, all both doing things slightly differently, but with trust and and the patients know which way they're going. I mean, it's an insurance based model, so so half half of the country political will politically will never embrace that. But but the actual structure of it just enhances that understanding. And so then, when your big quangos are meeting, they can call people from the regions and say, "How does this work?" We're not getting that. We're getting this kind of weird kind of collection of information and this churning out of a solution, which completely ignores what's what happens on the ground. You know, mm. so you look at um, I, look, I was interested to see a few tweet threads on what do, what do we need? What do we need in the NHS at the moment? And the first thing that came up was an IT system that works. It, it wasn't higher pay. It was a canteen that gave hot food in the middle of the night when I'm on my shift. You know, it was it was make this work better. Are these people in the central quangos in touch with that, connected with that at all? I just don't think mm. they are. So you know, it's it's about getting the get, making sure they hear the right information are on top of their briefs because I just think the way that it's all set up, this hyper centralization, just means that they're not. No, well, the sense the the it took for. I saw some of the central accounts from people that set up NHSX when they were looking at the digital strategy a couple of years back or maybe 18 months ago, pre-COVID, and they were they were just sort of saying that they thought it was a joke, that the um, the, the first policy was sort of um, popular because they said, get rid of fax machines. And they just did not, the, the, the accounts from those people that were then working those strategies out thought it was just a, 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 a typo that they actually were um, a, a very pivotal fax system that was still in place in there internally. So yeah, those sorts of features definitely need to be and also the lessons that can be learned especially for uh, local services that then speak to private businesses in their locale that, that can that have had to obviously been digitized for far longer you know yeah. there's no need for them to learn those lessons the long way like uh, many of us have done so when, when i think about um, local solutions then one of the things that i would love to do more of is to try and have better cross-pollination even on referral um, for um, the uh, local NHS department that uh, that sometimes is under the, under the caution, sometimes under very draconian uh, commission service level agreements that mean that they can't provide more than three sessions for an ACL, for example. It feels like it would be natural for them to be able to refer through to me and also hold me to account for certain feedback that they would like ahead of time, particularly if this is someone that's then pre-op. And then we, we're trying to get them to a stage whereby they might take some stuff over uh, again um, in the health service once they've had their operation, for example. That better cross-pollination, we all know that there are good examples of it locally in, in policy, but there are sometimes that there's a protectionism both ways there. And also patients that you see private, primarily privately initially, um, I sometimes surprised my local uh, NHS departments by making you know, contacting them and saying, where can I refer this in? And they say, well, that's that's unusual. What, what, what are you doing that for? Or there's no obvious hub for me to do that. Um, so you try and utilize some of the GP systems whereby they're yeah. referring patients. And they reject those referrals because they're just not set up to take them. So those are sorts of examples that I can see that we can, we can use as an example. But we also then need to champion those examples yeah. to make them more translated. Well, this is why I think the students is a good way to go, because if you've got if you're under the head, if you're under a local hospital and the NHS patient is following the student. Right. Because I don't think I think that many people in private practice, certainly me, I've never had students in private practice because my patients are paying to see me. Um, I pe people only get me if they ask me for me specifically, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable getting a student to treat my private patients. I just don't. And I think there are a lot of people that think that way. However, 
if we are taking some of the NHS load and the teaching load and having students have the NHS patients follow them so that we can supervise those people treating NHS patients, we then report back to that local department. That local department can take a view. Are they any good or not? Can we trust them to look after these these patients with these parameters that are NHS parameters that they need to abide by without taking the mickey uh, and over treating and not getting good results. So there has to be an avenue by which that collaboration is easy to achieve by doing them a favor to begin with. Because let's face it, if we're going to get that work, we've got to show them that we're good enough. Yeah, that's interesting. I've not really thought of that with the students. I, I can understand what you mean, and and what I'll describe as being the, the sort of squeamishness that you've had about um, students treating your patients, etc. I've certainly had that to some extent. I think, especially if you think about new patients coming in, I think that that certainly makes some eyes roll, and, and patients would be very surprised at, at that um, without a you know without a significant discount, say on a cash pay. However, once you're established within a relationship with a patient who's on your caseload, we've actually found taking students ourselves in practice that the patients are completely amenable to that i think especially beyond that initial contact or to make sure their expectations are well managed it's it's been surprised me how compatible it is and so i would say just to extend it the and it wouldn't necessarily for me need to be nhs patients as much as as long as the practice is appropriately remunerated for their supervision time as well yeah. as the fact that then you might just for example if you had a, a follow-up uh, follow-up frozen shoulder that you that you're working with that then a student's alongside you the ability for us to then be um, supported by say uh, health education england by a supplement to be able to say to that patient your appointment's going to be a bit longer because I'm going to be doing it with a student. And so there's, so that the, the patient then recognises and we can then afford to give that appointment a little bit longer in time because you're yeah. also then getting the student to to go about some practising and, and, the, and the patients seem to love that really. They just want a you know, person to chat about their, their recovery with it. Well, actually, yes. And when I've when I've worked with juniors before, they're actually re really reassured when you explain your reasoning to somebody you're working with. Uh, and, yeah. and but you just have to have that time. You have to have that extra 15 minutes per appointment. And you've, if you've got a stressed lawyer or, or media guy or, or management consultant, which is the bulk of my kind of work, who are who are just waiting for their next you know meeting, it's not going to work for them. Uh, so, so you have to, you, you know, you have to have them able to do it and also the time to teach properly. Um, and that's what makes me nervous. But, but, but hopefully if we have students or do, do some, find out some mechanism to, to make this work, then I think it'd be great. That's a really fair point as well. It is going to be the demographic differences between caseloads, etc. Um, I'm not. I'm not in a city clinic. I know you're, you're just to give people a reference point. You're you're in the city of London, and and therefore you've got your city slickers that you're describing there. That I can completely understand that they're clock watching all the time. Then me suggesting, well, if you're going to have a longer appointment, they, they, that would be a red flag for them. So uh, <laughs> no, exactly. Not gonna work. It's a really fair point. Um, so yeah, let me just ask the, ask the audience, as I've said, whenever we've got a guest on, it means you're quieter on the chat function. So wherever you're tuning into this, then please do uh, let us know your thoughts on this. What are your opinions as to both you know, problems as you see them, barriers or solutions to them um, with regards to cross-sector working, private and public, because we know we've got always got a mixed audience on this with regards to, and also I think one of the interesting things there is that there's so many people that work across sector. So I've always been fascinated at how bad it is for barriers because there's so many staff that that moonlight in private practice or work half time across both so you'd think that i don't know if that was just naive of me but i always thought that that would mean better cross-sector working because often the workforce is actually overlapping significantly 
I, 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 I'm not one of those, so so I would just suggest they're probably compartmentalizing, aren't they? Um, who knows? <laughs> and, and do you feel that when it comes to us trying to drive towards solutions on this, and we, we've spoken a lot about communicating better, proving concept with each other to build trust, etc. Do you think that there are uh the risk is that we're being naive about the sort of political goodwill that could be required for that to work properly on a, more than just the local level so if we were to say that we've yeah. proven concept translating it there are you know it's going to be politically relevant isn't it? i think that the most difficult thing to overcome is the the feeling i get from the nhs and from the csp that the answer is to absorb these private practitioners into the nhs I have to tell you guys, that's not the answer. The reason we're in private practice is because, well, we actually earn less than than the NHS, but it gives us more freedom. I've never missed a daughter's thing at school, a, a parent's night or whatever. That's my payoff. That's one of the reasons I'm in private because I can be flexible as a working mother to fit it around the rest of my life. The answer is not to bring people like me into the NHS. It's not going to work. So yes, if that, that I don't know, I hope not, but I suspect that that political barrier may be too difficult to overcome. And people are so, so more state, we want, we want it all into the state that they can't let that go and perhaps start to look at rather different solutions. I, I, I hope that's not the case. Well, as as you heard, because I know you'd listened to our podcast with Alex McKenzie recently, whereby yeah. we sort of I did I did press on that, and 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 she was open to the fact that the ideological differences both in the NHS and also in the CSP were somewhat deep rooted, and she was open to it. But also, as a she was coming at it as a pragmatist, she was recognizing that you know that. So at the very least, that's an in, isn't it? Is that there's, well, there's, that's, uh, that was fantastic people, to hear. That was really as long as people are willing to read the the real world. Now, yes. it doesn't mean we can't, you'd still have to keep an eye on the fact that ideological agendas can sometimes infiltrate even the, the best will in the world. But in, in stuff like that, that's that's heartening, isn't it? That we can have a, a facts-based discussion about things like what you've just described, which sometimes people might, oh, I've not thought about it like that. It's amazing how many times you give people pause for thought by saying, actually, there's a reason we call the independent sector because our independence is sometimes really relevant to the freedom of which we work and the flexibility. Yeah. And, and that can involve incredibly long hours or, or mixed mixed, uh, mixed schedules that sometimes aren't compatible within the NHS. Sometimes, though, you do encounter someone who will then say, well, therefore, the NHS that consumes all will need to be more flexible. You know, they sometimes just move the goalposts a little bit like that. But uh, we've had a comment come through here from Joe Turner. Yesterday's guest, in fact, of course. Well done, Joe. Love your clear and straightforward explanation as to why you're in private practice, Sue. We tend to muddy these discussions with unsaid ideological and or moral positions. So it sounds like a, Thank you, an agreement from, from, from Joe. Um, we've got, we've, we're into his into last minute, Sue. Um, but I, uh, I, I would just wonder if um, you could signpost people to how they can sort of follow you on social media. As we said, you're a bit louder on there than usual. Because of, because of time <laughs> so I want well, people to <laughs> dine out on your tweets whilst they can. <laughs> I, I need to. Uh, I need to get better at it. I mean, I'm 50. I'm. I'm. I'm the only. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'm SNJ at 1970 or whatever it is. I can't remember. You'll see it on the bottom of this, I'm sure. But I'm hoping to get more engaged on this kind of medium um, because you know. 
I've got a lot of experience. I, I'm a pragmatist, not a purist. I'm an, uh, Jack and I were saying before, I'm an anti-tribalist. I don't believe in tribes. I just believe in troubleshooting throughout and finding real and practical solutions ongoing. Um, and yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that I want to try, and it's a metaphor I'm always using, so forgive me to those that are listening that might have heard this too many times. But when, when, you, you, when, when tribes encounter each other, it's that the one that I, I want to be in is the one that then wants to bring that in rather yes. than you know, try and collaborate it together rather than, than allow for warring factions. And sometimes that takes for difficult conversations, somewhat like this one, not between us, but about this topic. It's challenging. So we need to know that that is something that we can't hide away from because the outcome is so positive for the health of the nation and, of course, the development of, of healthier professions that, that then are, are ones that people aspire to be within. And so exactly. these conversations are important. And so thank you for joining me on it. Please know thank that you if you are me. trying to, if you're pursuing, um, and, and I'm pleased to hear that you're uh, wanting to, to, to get better at it or to be more vocal, then of course, this is a one platform for you. But I look forward to working with you uh, in the broader network of things to make sure that your voice is heard because it's a very important one. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. I've had a good time. Thank you. <laughs> good. I'm glad it's not been too scary. You had said. Be, I was a bit terrified, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> said that. I don't know how I'm managing to terrify everyone. I was saying earlier on this week, I think one of the reasons I've come across is scary is because I didn't have this fancy light. And so I was hiding away in the shadows here. But now that I've got this light, hopefully I'm more, uh, more uh, approachable. That's very the plan. Good. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And we'll see you soon, Jim. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Bye.